0: Good morning once again. If you are new, welcome. Just to let you know, we are working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday mornings, which is where I'd like everyone to turn right now, to chapter 19, as we are studying the most important weekend in the history of mankind, the weekend Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose again. So, we are going to pick it up in John 19, verse 17. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him. So cruel and barbaric was crucifixion that Rome forbid its own citizens from being crucified, no matter what they had done. So abhorrent was even the mention of crucifixion that it was taboo as a topic of polite conversation. One author said, We have yet to see an accurate, full depiction of crucifixion in modern media. If it were ever made, it would be limited to adult audiences because of its intense horror and brutality. You know, it's interesting that none of the gospel writers focus on the uh, details of the crucifixion they simply say they crucified him that's all they say and I think this is primarily because the Holy Spirit didn't want to sensationalize the crucifixion but also because everyone back then knew full well what crucifixion entailed there was no need to emphasize the obvious however what was obvious to them In their day is completely obscure to us in ours. So I need to give you a little background so that you have at least a working knowledge of what crucifixion was all about. As I have said in previous studies, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they perfected it as one of the cruelest forms of execution imaginable designed to produce a slow death at maximum pain with maximum pain and suffering. In fact, so painful was crucifixion that they actually had to invent a a new word to describe it, the pain. It's a Latin word that we get our English word excruciating from. New Testament crucifixions involved the condemned criminal carrying his cross to the place where the execution would take place, which in Jesus' case was Golgotha. At that point, the cross was laid on the ground, and Jesus was made to lie on top of it. His feet were placed one on top of the other, and a single nail was driven be, through the one on top, out the heel on the bottom, into the vertical crossbeam of the cross. You, you, we say nailed, they nailed Jesus to the cross. The nails they used were more along the lines of, of, of railroad spikes. It wasn't anything like you would see in a house that was used to build a house. You know, some of the bigger nails, we've 16 penny nails, we say. Uh, that was nothing compared to what these nails were all about. So they put his feet one on top of the other and drove a spike through both feet into the vertical beam of the cross and then stretched his arms out And they drove spikes through, not the hands. We've all seen this, right? The hand, the nail prints in Jesus' hand. People that know physical anatomy have said they didn't nail the nails, put the nails through Jesus' hands because the hands would not have been able to, to hold up the weight. So what they did was they drove them right through the wrist here, all right, Because the bone structure is such where it would have been able to carry the weight of the body of the one being crucified. So right at the heel of the wrist, uh, below the hand. And that's where they drove the nails into Jesus' hands. Uh, And the way they did it was they nailed his body in such a way that there was a slight bend in the knee and the legs that was allowed. Why? I'll tell you that more in just a moment. So then the cross was picked up and dropped into a hole and it came down with a thud. And you can imagine how excruciating that was for our Lord as the full weight of his body was now being held on the cross by the nail in his feet and the nails in his hands. In his book, The Life of Christ, Frederick Farrar describes crucifixion as follows. He said and I quote, A death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have. The horrible and ghastly dizziness, cramping, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of of intended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all, but all stopping just short of the point which would have, which would give to the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. They had this dialed in pretty good. They were able to perfect a system where it inflicted crucifixion, the Romans did, would inflict maximum pain on the person being crucified, almost to the point where it's unbearable, but not so much that it caused the person to pass out, thus providing some relief. That's what the author is saying. The unnatural position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds, inflamed by exposure, gradually green. Many of these victims of crucifixion didn't die for several days. And at that time, during that time, the open wounds would begin to gangrene. The arteries especially at the head and stomach became swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood, and while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pang of a burning and raging thirst. He concludes, one thing is clear. The first century executions were not like the modern ones, for they did not seek a quick, painless death, nor the preservation of any measure of dignity for the criminal on the contrary they sought an agonizing torture which completely humiliated him and it's important that we understand this for it helps us realize the agony of Christ's death End quote in an article that appeared some years ago in the Arizona Medical Journal article written by Dr. Truman Davis entitled the crucifixion of Jesus, the passion of Christ from a medical point of view, he adds some additional insight into what Jesus would have endured uh, while dying on the cross. He said, and I quote, At this point, another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed, and the intercostal muscles are unable to act. See, the idea with crucifixion is most people died of asphyxiation. They couldn't breathe. Why? Because while they were hanging there, their body would slump down, and it would close off the ability for them to breathe. So they would have to pull themselves up on the nails in their hands and push themselves up. Uh, from the nail in their feet to just come up high enough where they could take a breath of air and then they would slump back down again and this could go on for days you can imagine how cruel it was it was eventually outlawed even by the romans they realized how barbaric it really was um but he goes on um air can be drawn into the lungs when the person being crucified pulls themselves up uh, air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath finally carbon dioxide builds up in in the lungs and in the bloodstream and the cramps partially subside uh, spasmodically he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain, as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium, the sac that surrounds the heart, slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp to gasp in small gulps of air. And I think we get the idea. It's important to remember that Jesus was no victim of circumstances. He affirmed this when he said, and I'll paraphrase what he said in John 10, No one takes my life from me by force. I lay it down for the sheep of my own will." So again, verse 17. And he bearing the cross went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. Latin for Golgotha is Calvary. They both mean the place of a skull. So now you're sitting there thinking, so you mean to tell me Calvary Chapel? is the place of a skull chapel technically now we don't put it under the marquee out in front especially around this time of year because it sounds like we're a little too halloween friendly but yeah okay but when it says he was crucified um, in the place of a skull some interpret this to mean that jesus was crucified on a burial ground like a cemetery a place that was called the place of a skull because of all the skulls of dead bodies that were found there. That is incorrect. See, the Romans never crucified people in remote locations away from the population, as in a cemetery. They always crucified criminals along the roads. And somebody pointed out after last service, you know, every picture I've ever seen of Jesus crucified, he was always lifted up about 15 feet in the air. Now, that's incorrect also. Because the idea was they wanted to crucify these people on the right along the roads, but low enough where they could mock them, almost eye to eye, spit on them. They couldn't spit on Jesus if he was 15 feet in the air. I'm guessing he was about a foot, foot and a half off the ground um, when he was lifted up on the cross there, right? But it was all purposeful. The, the Romans wanted to inflict maximum pain, but also maximum humiliation and again they wanted people to look at the prisoner to mock them spit at them just gives us the humiliation was part of it right besides it wasn't called the place of skulls Golgotha or Calvary it was called the place of a skull and I believe this is a reference to a place right outside the walls of Jerusalem to the north a place that I've been to six or seven times a place that today is called Gordon's Calvary, where they have found the garden tomb. We'll speak, talk about that more when we get to the resurrection. But near there you will see a cave in the side of the hill that, listen, used to look like a skull. Why do I say used to look like a skull? Because a few years ago they had an earthquake in that area and the cave collapsed. But you can go online. I've got pictures in my own collection of pictures from Israel. You can go online and type in you know uh, Calvary or Golgotha and and they have pictures I've seen from the 1800s and you could see first time I went there to the tomb we were in a group and we sat down on some benches because they were going to talk to us about the garden tomb and you look over and it's like oh my gosh this was in early 90s first time I went It, it just you couldn't miss it it was a skull it was the cave looked like a skull. And so I challenge you to go online and look at it because it's incredible, right? Um, but, okay, let me just say this. As we study the events that led up to Jesus, you know, his, his, um, uh, led up to his, his walk to Mount Calvary, and then, of course, his crucifixion on Golgotha, um, the gospel writers, and so we'll be bringing in things from the different gospel writers Uh, they record seven aspects, seven things that happened. Um, Actually, I'm going to bring in some more next week, but there are seven main things that the Gospels clearly teach us that happened that surrounded Jesus' uh, walk to Golgotha and then him being crucified. And most of these are fulfillments of specific Old Testament prophecies. All right? So again, John 19, verse 17, John simply records, and he bearing the cross. Now turn to Luke 23. Keep your finger there because we're going to stay in Luke for just a little bit. Turn to Luke 23 because Luke gives us a lot more about what happened. Luke 23, let's start with verse 26. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon of Cyrene, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus, or for Jesus. Now, last week we did a whole study on Simon. So I know you ladies were at the retreat, if you want to. I just had one of the guys in the sound team that was with the ladies at the retreat say he listened to it and really enjoyed it. It's just really a unique uh, thing that the Holy Spirit includes Simon. And there's a lot we can learn from him, which we tried to bring out last time. But so this guy, Simon, from country of Cyrene, was in town and uh, in the area. They grabbed him, and they made him carry Jesus' cross. Jesus was too weak by this point to continue up the steep incline towards Golgotha. Um, up all night, severely beaten on t- two occasions, scourged, loss of blood, he was too weak to carry a 200-pound cross to drag it up Golgotha. So they, uh, they uh, pressed Simon. Rome said you could do this. They pressed Simon into service, and he carried Jesus' cross. Verse 27, And a great multitude of people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, uh, the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will, they, what will be done in the dry? Commentators Look at these verses, and they all pretty much conclude that Jesus was here predicting the destruction of Jerusalem, which would happen 38 years after his resurrection in 70 A.D. Now, Jesus first made this prediction in his famous Olivet Discourse, or in other words, the teaching that took place on the Mount of Olives. To read this, let's read this in chapter 21 of Luke's Gospel, Luke 21, because the Lord first mentions it or prophesies it here. Luke 21 starting with verse 20. Now when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her, Jerusalem depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land, great tribulation is the idea, and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, all of this came to pass in 70 AD. When the Romans surrounded the city of Jerusalem, eventually they seized it. And they burned the city and especially the temple. Uh, they destroyed the temple to the point because they set it on fire and the gold in the ceiling of the temple melted, ran down between the cracks of the rocks. So they dismantled the temple stone by stone through the stones over into the Tropian Valley where they are still there to this day. I've seen them. They completely, Jesus said, not one stone is going to be left upon another. All will be cast out. Talking about this devastation that was going to happen in 70 AD. And so they destroyed the Romans, the city and the temple. The Lord concluded his warning with a proverbial saying, and I'll paraphrase it, for if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? And one author says, in other words, he is the green tree, Jesus Christ, full of life and fruitfulness. If this is what the Romans did to him, what would they do to the dry, dead, barren nation of Israel in 70 AD? Well, they completely destroyed it. Another commentator offers this interpretation. Probably the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is the short-term fulfillment. The long-term fulfillment is the destruction of Jerusalem by the Antichrist in the future, yet future to us still as well as the judgment on Jerusalem in the tribulation period, uh, are in view here in Jesus' words. The destruction by the Romans would only be a foretaste of a worse judgment still future, end quote. So he prophesied about the destruction of Jerusalem. Number two, he was crucified between two thieves, right? Again, John 19, verses 17 and 18. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Gogatha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Now, each of the gospels tells us that two others were crucified at the same time with Jesus. Only Matthew, Mark, and Luke call them robbers, and only Luke tells us that Jesus and one of the, the- one of the thieves had a brief conversation with each other that wound up in his conversion. The word robber that is used in the Gospels to describe the men who were crucified on either side of Christ is the same word that was used to describe Barabbas. It's the Greek word leistis, and it probably means more than a thief. James Montgomery Boyce, wonderful commentator, said, and I quote, the word refers to what we would call a guerrilla soldier or revolutionary, and probably suggests that those who were crucified along with Jesus were Barabbas' companions. This is more than likely because stealing was not a capital offense. Was Barabbas intended for the cross in the center? Probably. If so, Jesus literally took his place, just as in a figurative sense he took the place of all who believe on him and trust him alone for their salvation, end quote. Luke adds this. He's the only one. Look at Luke 23, starting with verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed blasphemed him, Jesus, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Guys, I don't know if you realize what a blessing this has been, this this passage. What a blessing it has been to countless thousands over the centuries who thought it was too late for them to give their lives to God, to get their lives right with God by receiving Jesus as their Savior. Maybe you've heard somebody say, well, it's too late for me. I've had people say that to me. It's too late for me, Pastor. It's only too late after you've breathed your last breath on this earth. You know what this does? You know what this the Holy Spirit is doing by, by telling us that one of the thieves got converted before he died? I mean, we're talking hours before he died. He was converted. The Holy Spirit is here. He's uh, teaching us that God even accepts, what is the word, the term, deathbed conversions. As long as your heart is sincere. It doesn't matter if you're, you're you know, two minutes from death. If you pray to receive Jesus and say, Lord, I am a sinner. But you died for sinners. You died for me. And right now, I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to come into my heart and take control of my life. If you do that, I don't care if you're 30 seconds before death. You will be saved. You will go to heaven. The thief on the cross is the Holy Spirit's way of telling us that's exactly, it's never too late. And God is continuing to draw people up to the moment of salvation, of uh, uh, death. Come to me. It's It's not until you breathe your last that it's too late. Our God is an incredible God. Now, guys, at this point, we can't help but remember another prophecy. This fulfilled him dying between two thieves. This one out of Isaiah 53, verse 12. He was numbered with the transgressors. Number three, we see the mocking and blasphemy directed at Jesus, first of all, by those who were just passing by. Turn to Matthew now, verse uh, chapter 27. We'll hang out in that neighborhood for a little bit. The mocking and blasphemy directed at Jesus while young on that cross, directed at him from those passing by. Matthew 27, verse 39. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now guys, the mocking statement made by the fickle crowd when they said, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days was based on something Jesus had said earlier in his ministry. Keep your finger in Matthew, turn to John 2. And let's pick it up in verse 18. Now Jesus had just cleansed the temple, drove out the money changers and those that sold animals, and so the Jewish leadership is pretty upset with him. And so the Jews, the Jewish leaders, answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? And John, having penned his gospel 60 years later, adds his own commentary. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Guys, most if not all of these mockers were probably Jews um, from the area or pilgrims from out of town that had come to celebrate the Passover. And because the city couldn't accommodate all of these travelers, the three main Jewish feasts of the year, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, uh, drew Jews from all over the known world. Um, You know, the city would, would fill up quick. All the lodging places, right? The katalumas, which was just basically four walls, no roof, and a well in the middle, where that was the Holiday Inn back then. Okay, uh, but those filled up quick, and um, so they would have to pilgrims would have to find lodging in the surrounding towns and villages. Now, that meant that there was a, a much higher volume of foot traffic than usual coming in and out of Jerusalem. What was what was really tragic, though, is that four days earlier, some of these very people who had been crying Hosanna, right? Save now. You're the Messiah. We want you to save now. Hosanna. Some of those very people, they, they spoke that on Palm Sunday, and then four days later, they some of the same people, that were crying, crucify him, crucify him the morning of his crucifixion. You say, well, how could that be? How could people turn like that? Well, that's a good question. Let me give to you what one author says, which I think explains this fickle, flip-flop he said and i quote although they were grateful for his miracles and awed by his preaching they had no desire for him to cleanse them of cherished sins or to give him control of their lives there's a lot of that going around even today they had expected him to be their kind of messiah a messiah who would overthrow rome and establish israel as sovereign over the gentile world The fact that he had allowed himself to be arrested, mocked, beaten, scourged, and tried before the pagan Pilate while offering no verbal, much less miraculous, defense was proof enough in their minds that he was not the Messiah whom they and most of Israel wanted and expected. And because of it, even though some might have called themselves his disciples just a few days earlier, now they felt betrayed let down, and robbed of their hopes of kingdom glory. And so they turned on Jesus with a vicious hatred and mocked him while he hung on the cross. At the end of the day, people are selfish. There's a lot of folks that come to church, not because they really love God, love Jesus, and want to really give their lives to him. They come looking for what God's going to do for them. And we have a lot of churches that feed right into that, don't we? Come to our church. We'll tell you God's going to make you rich keep you healthy you have the best house in town drive the fanciest cars your business will prosper beyond anything you can even imagine paul says don't hang out with those kind of people the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil but godliness with contentment is great gain. and this is what we have to understand right but people come to church looking for god to do something for them and if he doesn't come through they turn on him with a viciousness and all I've seen it. The Greek indicates that these folks hurling these, these mockings and all this against Jesus that morning, uh, the Greek indicates there was a continuous barrage of vile defamations being hurled at the Son of God. to emphasize their disdain for him even more and you have to have visited the Middle East uh, to understand this fully, although I see it in America too. They emphasize their disdain for him even more. They wag their heads in mockery. You ever see that? If anybody ever wags their head at you, or they're putting you down, you say, you know, God hates what you just did. In the (laughs) Old Testament, God says he's going to punish those who wag the head. It's a sign of pride and arrogance, right? God hates what you just did. What do you mean? Because it's a sign of pride, a sign of arrogance. And you know, God doesn't like that stuff. Maybe they'll get saved, I don't know.
1: (laughs) But to emphasize
0: their disdain for Jesus even more, they wagged their heads in mockery, and they said to him, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Now guys, a thousand years before this, David, Jesus actually speaking through David. Psalm 22 is actually was written by David a thousand years before the cross. But Really, Jesus was prophesying through David while he was hanging on the cross. And he was looking, of course, Jesus wouldn't hang on that cross for a thousand years. But, of course, uh, Jesus was speaking to David about what he would see while hanging on that cross and looking down at what was going on around him. And a lot of it was the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. David prophesied this very thing in Psalm 22, verse 7 which says, all those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake, or they wag the head. A thousand years before Christ hung on that cross, he spoke through David. Now, I'm sure most of you already know this, but criminals were often crucified naked to um, enhance their shame. Think about what the Son of God endured to purchase our salvation. Can I remind you just quickly again. He was beaten first by the temple guards then scourged, mocked, beaten again by the Roman soldiers, stripped naked, crucified, spit upon, mocked some more before dying at the the hands of those he came to save. There are groups that blame the Jews and the Romans for hanging Jesus on the cross. There are groups that developed a very strong anti-Semitic feeling against the Jewish people because they crucified our Lord are you, are you that clueless it wasn't the Jews and the Romans that put Jesus on that cross it was all of us mankind I mean don't blame the Romans for killing Jesus or the Jews we all put him on that cross, a cross that he accepted listen, willingly And somebody has said it wasn't the nails that held Jesus to that cross, it was love it was love and don't ever forget that. His great love wherewith he loved us. Remember what Paul said in Romans 5, verses 6 to 9? He said, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. <clears throat> now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might be, perhaps be willing to die for a person who was especially good, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation, end quote. In other words, once you've received Jesus into your heart, you are born of the Spirit, you're born again. Your sins are all washed away by the blood of Christ, and God writes on your ledger, paid in full. And as Paul said, you will, you have. Pa- Jesus said you have passed from death to life. You will never come into condemnation. You'll never be sent to hell. So I disagree with those people who say we can lose our salvation. If you really have it, I don't believe you can ever lose it. But that's between you and God. I know one thing: if you think you can lose your salvation, you become fodder for the devil, because now he can get in there and really, really work the condemnation in your heart. I'm not advocating just because I'm saved by grace, some people say, "Oh, you think you're saved by grace? Well, that means you think you can go out and sin at will. When you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you don't want to live in sin. I believe I'm saved by grace. I believe I'm eternally secure. Sinning is the last thing I want to do. And I think that's true for every true child of God, right? So the crowd mocked, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross, save yourself. Can I just say that he could have come down from that cross anytime he wanted? Didn't he earlier in the garden when the soldiers came to arrest him and Peter pulls his sword, right? Starts swinging away, hacks off some guy's ear. And Jesus put Peter, put your sword back in its sheath. Don't you know that at any time I can call to my father and he will send 12 legions, a legion with 6,000 soldiers, 72,000 angels to save me. But for this hour I have come into the world. Let me just say this again. He could have saved himself anytime he wanted to. He could have come down from that cross. If he would have saved himself, though, he couldn't have saved us. So again, love was holding him on that cross. And the clueless crowd had no idea what they were saying. They truly were speaking out of the mouth of Satan who continues to challenge Christians. Look, you love Jesus, fine, but you don't have to be a fanatic. And why does the devil put that? And a lot of these folks that say this are church people. They're church people who are living a carnal life and they see you wanting to take up your cross Deny yourself and follow in Jesus' footsteps, right? Which is what Jesus, a true disciple, always does. And so here you are trying to live a crucified life. Trying to live a selfless life like Jesus lived. So that you can reach others for him. And there's always going to be people in churches across this country and across the world who are going to look at you, your life becomes a a rebuke to them. A form of of um, where you're, you know, your life just becomes where they're, they're uh, guilty. But God forbid they should examine themselves. Brother or sister, so-and-so, look at the life they're living. Boy, that convicts me. I need to get right with God. I need to start living a crucified life, right? No. They want to think of themselves as normal, so you're abnormal. You're the radical. You're the goofball. Because you want to live a full-on committed life for Jesus. Right? You know, you can be saved, I'll tell you. But just don't be such a fanatic. Come down from the cross. Oh, where have we heard that before? I'll tell you what. A Christian who comes down from the cross is a carnal Christian. And a carnal Christian can't be used by God to save anybody. So we see the mocking crowd. How about the mocking chief priests, scribes, and elders? Because they were involved in this too. Matthew 27, look at verse 41. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now. If, If he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. Well, certainly if he's really the son of God, his father in heaven is not going to want to see him die like this. How clueless religious people often are. A lot of it is because they read the Bible, but they don't really read it. They skim it and take things out of context, and then they come back at you with arguments that are completely Unbiblical. It's interesting how that God's will is often manifest in very negative circumstances, right? Again, the positive confession movement. If it's positive, it's of God. If it's negative, it can't be of God. That's why they, the positive confession movement. You only want to make positive confessions, don't want to make a negative confession. Here's the problem with that. The Bible never talks in terms of positive and negative. That sounds like electricity. That sounds like Hinduism. The Bible talks in terms of truth and error. give you an example, Garden of Eden. God said, don't eat of this one tree, because the day you eat the fruit of this tree, you're going to die. Sounds pretty negative, doesn't it? Here comes the devil being very positive. Oh, no, no, no. You're not going to surely die. God knows the day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you're going to become like God. Sounds very positive, doesn't it? Sometimes the truth comes across kind of negative, and a lie comes across very positive. Know your Bible. Know your Bible and understand the will of God. Understand what He has said in the pages of Scripture, right? These guys assumed because Jesus was on a cross, He couldn't be the Son of God. Of course, they feel differently now, but you know, that unfortunately for them, right? But guys, these men made up what was called the Sanhedrin, the Jewish High Council. This is the very group that had Jesus arrested, tried, and condemned earlier that morning. They challenged him to have God deliver him if he was truly the Son of God and King of Israel, the Messiah. Again, fulfilling uh, Psalm 22, verse 8, as Jesus looking down from the cross, seeing these men mocking him, these leaders, And here's what they were saying, as recorded in Psalm 22, verse 8. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Author Jim Boyce said, and I quote, That is the straightforward account of the crucifixion in Matthew's gospel. But this is where we have to stop and go back over it in our mind, remembering what Jesus did for us. Can we imagine it? Perhaps we can think of a lacerated body bleeding from head to foot. His form is so marred that he is hardly recognizable even to his friends. No representation of Jesus crucifixion w- that I have ever seen, even in the greatest uh, even by the greatest artist does, doesn't do justice to this horror. They are all too clean, too sterile. The crucifixion was bloody and vulgar, ugly and repulsive. Yet he was the Son of God, absolutely. Think of that and try to understand something of the horror of your sin and my sin um, and of the grace, love, and mercy and compassion of God that would cause his son to die that kind of death for us. Do you understand that it was for you? And I'll add for me, Jesus endured this. Of course, it was all in accordance with another prophecy, one that we know very well, Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. I'll personalize it. But he, Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The innocent dying for the guilty. The great evangelical Anglican Bishop John Ryle said, and I quote, Was he (laughs) scourged? It was that through his stripes we might be healed. Was he condemned though innocent? It was that we might be acquitted though guilty. Did he wear a crown of thorns? It was that we might wear the crown of glory. Was he stripped of his raiment? It was that we might be clothed in everlasting righteousness. Was he mocked and reviled? It was that we might be honored and blessed. Was he reckoned a malefactor and numbered among the transgressors? It was that we might be reckoned innocent and justified from all sin. Was he declared unable to save himself? It was that he might be able to save others to the uttermost. And finally, did he die at last? And that the most painful and disgraceful of deaths? It was that we might live forevermore And be exalted to the highest glory. End quote. All right, number four, and these will move quicker. All right. Pilate, his written charge against Jesus. John 19, 19. Now, Pilate wrote a title, a placard, really, a sign, and put it on the cross. The writing was Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, all four gospel writers record that Pilate put a sign on the cross. They don't all say the exact same thing because they're not trying to to uh, relate exactly what it says. They're trying just to give you the gist of it, the gist of it, right? A kind of a just a summary statement, right, of what was written on this placard. Uh, Matthew states, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Mark writes, the king of the Jews. Luke reports the words as, this is the king of the Jews. And again, the Gospel writers are simply trying to give us the essence of what the charge was against Jesus that day without being exact. John probably recorded the full charge ordered by Pilate to be written uh, and placed on the cross. Again, verse 19, John 19, 19. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Boy, Pilate was really trying to irk. He wrote it in the three predominant languages of those who lived in or visited Jerusalem, Greek, uh, Latin, and uh, Hebrew, so that everybody knew what had been written, okay? Now, this really irked the Jewish leadership. Verse 21, therefore the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. I think he's had it now. He's allowed these guys to push him into doing something he didn't want to do. He knew Jesus was innocent. He knew they had delivered him over to him because of envy. Pilate tried to let Jesus go free. The Jews backed him into a corner, as we've already seen, and forced his hand. So he was made to do something he really didn't want to do, crucify an innocent man. And Now there's still one to dictate. And at this point he says, you know what? What I've written, I've written. That's it. I think he wanted this to be like a little poke in the eye of these guys. You know, he, he couldn't. He had to do it because... Politically, he was backed into a corner. I'm not saying he was justified. We talked about that when we studied that pa- passage. I'm not, I'm not giving Pilate a pass. But as a true politician, he did what was expedient, as most of them do. But um, at this point, he's had it now. Okay. Number five the gambling for Jesus' clothes. John 19, verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts. They cut him into four parts, uh, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now, the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. So it was a valuable garment, is the idea. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. First of all, let me just say this. Don't let verse 23 confuse you when it says, uh, when they had crucified Jesus. That doesn't mean the crucifixion was over. It simply means at this point they picked up the cross with Jesus now nailed on it and dropped it into that hole with a thud. This is where the crucifixion, as we think of it, actually began. All right. So just to throw that out there... Um, but they divided his garments, casting lots. Now again, each of the Gospels records how the soldiers divided Jesus' clothing. However, guys, only John says that they cast lot for his seamless outer robe, not wanting to cut it because it was valuable. Again, it was woven as one piece from the top down. Now, I have heard Word of Faith teachers pick up on this. I've heard this. And they claim, okay, see, this proves that Jesus was a wealthy man. Because, you know, he wants everyone wealthy, too. That's the, with the, the shtick. So this proves Jesus was a wealthy man. He wore designer clothes. Yes, yes. And he wants you to wear designer clothes, too. See right here, Scripture proves that. And again, the words, get thee behind me, Satan, come to mind. Also, Matthew and John are the only ones who tell us that this was a fulfillment of of prophecy. Also, Psalm 22, verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Number six, and one that's really enduring, Jesus caring for his mother. Verse 25, now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, Mary, and his mother's sister, that would be Salome, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, or in other words, James and John, the first cousins of Jesus. Also standing there was Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Mary was a very popular name back then. Mm -hmm. You can... Correct me if I'm wrong. I think up up through the 60s, maybe beyond, Mary was the most popular name given to girls in our country. We all want our daughters to be like Mary. Judas, eh, not so much... (laughs) No family named their sons Judas. (laughs) But we love to name our daughters Mary. Now, I don't know what it is today. Eh, But back then it was like that. So, here these women are standing by the cross. When Jesus, verse 26, therefore saw his mother, and the disciple whom he loved, that would be John, standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. So he said to Mary, Mary, behold your son, John. Then he said to the disciple, John, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home, and she lived with John the rest of her life. He took care of her. John's is the only gospel that records this scene. Very touching scene. And I think this could be the reason why John had some insights into the early life of Jesus, including and especially his birth, that other the other gospel writers didn't have. They say, well, how was that? Come on, you take into your house a Jewish mother? You know how much they love to talk about their sons. You're going to tell me Mary didn't, you know, over coffee every morning talk to John about Jesus. Oh, you, you, you should have seen him growing up. You're so cute. You know, just giving all this information. But especially I think he had some insights into when Jesus was born. We know it was in December 25th. We know that. So when was it? Well, you're going to have to go online and listen to the Christmas message we gave 2021 because we went into this don't have time to get into it right now and finally the seventh thing that we see recorded about jesus death they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink john 28 excuse me uh chapter there's if you got a john 28 in your bible come and see me um john chapter 19 verse 28 after this jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished that the scripture might be fulfilled, all the prophecies had now been fulfilled of his death. He said, "I thirst." Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled the sponge the soldiers did with sour wine and put it up on, on, on put it on a hyssop branch, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, let me stop there. All four gospels reference this, but it is likely it is likely that it was two separate acts that were involved. Here's why I say that. Matthew and Mark describe what Jewish historians have said. Uh, Jewish sources have told us that back then it was customary, while crucifixions were being still done, it was customary uh, that there was a wealthy group of women who had formed a little society, and they would minister to those criminals who were being crucified, by taking uh, wine and mixing it with gall, gall was a narcotic, and it was designed to dull the senses and make the pain a little more bearable. That was a ministry that these gals back then had. Mark and Matthew, excuse me, Matthew and Mark say this drink was offered at the start of Jesus' crucifixion, but Jesus refused to drink it. Apparently, he didn't want his senses dulled. He wanted his mind to be kept clear presumably to experience the fullness of his suffering on our behalf however in john's gospel he seems to refer to something the soldiers did later he records that when jesus said i am thirsty uh, and of course this was going to fulfill another prophecy in psalm 69 verse 21 which that scripture says prophesying of this event They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Psalm 69, verse 21. So Jesus is fulfilling every prophecy that was written about his death. And at one point he says in John's Gospel, I am thirsty. So the soldiers soaked a sponge in some sour wine, put it on some kind of a branch, a hyssop branch, and lifted it to Jesus' mouth. And we are told at that time Jesus did taste what was offered. So he did taste this, where he didn't taste the wine mixed with gall or some kind of narcotic. Um, but but uh, we, we know this happened, though, at the end. Uh, the other, the women offering wine mixed with gall, happened at the beginning, which, of course, that's your ministry to dull the pain of men being crucified. You wouldn't wait till the end. You'd wait till you do it at the beginning. But here, this seems to have happened. Well, it didn't seem... it definitely happened at the end of jesus crucifixion verse 30 tells us that and when jesus had received the sour wine he said it is finished i'll tell you what three of the most precious words that have ever been uttered it is finished and bowing his head he gave up his spirit now guys we're done let me just say this to set this up for next week there are so many other details um surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus that I'd like to take one more message and looking at them because there's just too much and this is the most important event this along with the resurrection most important events in the history of humanity and I think we ought to spend a little time understanding what it what happened so next week I'd like to take one more message and looking at Jesus crucifixion some of the other Um, incredible things that happened that surrounded or took place while he was on the cross and then we will move on so come on back father we thank you lord for your great love we're with you loved us that you sent your son to die for us guilty sinners and lord jesus we know you were no victim you gave yourself freely for the sheep out of love and lord we praise and thank you And we ask you, Lord, to keep blessing these studies in your word as we study this incredible event that saved all of us, your crucifixion and then three days later, your resurrection. So, Lord, keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.